In, in the spring of the year, when new life blooms all around us, there was a young man and a, and a young woman, his girlfriend, and they were planning to attend a baseball game that day, that afternoon. But on the way there, he changed his mind, he changed his plans and decided to take a walk in the local park. And as they sat near the lake in that park, they talked and were talking and he pulled a ring out of his pocket and proposed marriage to this young woman. She accepted with glee and excitement, nearly knocking them both into the pond. And then in that excitement, their minds began racing about the wedding plans and, and what they were going to do. But, you know, before they could even make those plans, they had to, they had to leave. They had to leave the park and, and go home. And, and as they were doing so, you know, on their way to tell their family, they were telling strangers, we're getting married and very excited about the event that was coming. Well, you know, engagement photos were snapped. And over the next few summer months, detailed plans were made. And they settled on a ceremony date seven months away from, from that day. That's when they picked out. It would be in seven months in, in the bitter cold of winter, which was in the big, a big contrast to that spring day. And the bride picked out her wedding dress. They picked out colors. The bridal party was chosen. And then they were working together. They drafted a guest list. They uh, booked the wedding venue. They looked at flowers once and twice and again and again to pick, pick out just the right flowers. And, and they went through the, uh, all of the music that you could listen to, you know, to find, a, find the right music for every part of the ceremony. They, they, the idea of a warm tropical honeymoon became a firm plan. And then they went through premarital counseling, this couple did, and, and even learning to ride a tandem bicycle together to uh, help them understand the dynamics of communication when you're under stress, when, you're, when you don't know exactly what the other person is going to do. Virtually everything for the wedding day was planned. And then October came. And in their zeal and effort, the couple had managed to entirely be ready for the wedding in just four months. And now, they had over three months to wait for their wedding day when they would share their first ever kiss. So it was this perfect scenario of hurry up and wait for them. And it really tested them, and it tested their patience. What were they going to do between October and December? And I tell you that story to tell you that waiting can be hard. Like this couple, those of us in the body of Messiah are also waiting. We're waiting as a bride for the bridegroom. Our songs express this desire. We, we sang this morning, voice of bride and voice of bridegroom, right? The, or the voice of gladness and voice of joy. The, the joy for the bride and the bridegroom. We sing Songs like, Bo Yeshua, come, Lord Jesus, come. Come, Yeshua, come. Bo Yeshua. And so the purpose of my message this morning is to really encourage you that after the fall feast that we've been through, where we have this time where we're really looking forward to the return of Yeshua, that we still have a job to do. 
We still have work to do between now and that wedding day. We still do. We still have a job. So that's my encouragement for you. Now, when I proposed to Lisa on that spring day in 2007, I didn't know that it was going to take us only four months to plan the wedding. If I had known that, I probably would have set our ceremony date sometime in the autumn, in the fall, when we had really nice weather, instead of the, well, it turned out to be a blizzard that day in December on our wedding day. It was literally blizzarding out, and we had it anyway. We went forward with it anyway. Nothing was going to change our plans. Either, either that or I would have, you know, I would have paced myself, okay? Give myself some things to do each, each month along the way. I would have paced myself, you know, to, to make sure I had stuff to do. Now, now God did throw us a few curveballs, a few, a few changes, not nasty ones, but good surprises along the way. They give us a few more changes to make. But overall, you know, we really did have everything taken care of ahead of time barely halfway through our engagement period. Now, I'm thankful that we had a wise family, and we had a, a, a really strong mishpacha here at Remnant to really walk alongside of us towards that big day and really help us continue our focus to our growth of our relationship with each other, with the Lord. Uh, you know, we were willing to wait because we knew that our wedding day and all that was coming with it was worth waiting for. We were willing to wait for that day. Now, I'm certain that, you know, if I asked you, you could come up with a number of stories similar to that where you had to, there was some big patience-building exercise in your own life, some waiting time that you really didn't understand necessarily. You know, we all have those stories in our lives, and your story might be funny, it might be pain-filled, though, or it might be full of twists and turns, too. You know, but out, you know, outside of big events like weddings, we experience examples of having to wait every single day in our, just our normal everyday life. I doubt that any of us here in Western culture really enjoy waiting because we have built this culture of hard work and efficiency and get it done now, right? That's, that's the culture that we live in. Uh, we're conditioned to do that. You know, there, there are some cultures around the world that are not like this. I don't know if you've ever seen that, but waiting is like an art in some cultures where they don't mind just doing nothing and waiting for something all day, multiple days. And, and that's, it's, it's part of their, ingrained in their culture. That's not how we live here in America, though. It's not how I'm conditioned to. You know, when, when I approach a traffic light, I'm like, okay, which lane has the fewest cars? You know, <laughs> which one? Okay, oh, that, that one's got a big truck in it. I'm going to get in the other lane. You know, I know that truck's going to be slow. Um, when I go to the grocery store and I check, looking at the lines, which one am I going to get in, or the self-checkout, you know, oh, well, that person's got a full cart in the self-checkout, nope, I'm going to go over there, you know, they're not, you know, I'm looking for that, that gain in efficiency, how quickly can I get it done? Um, when I want the kids uh, to get ready for something, I want action, you know, I don't want dilly-dying around, you know, I'm going to, oh, I got to go get my shoes, where are my shoes, there are, I don't know where my shoes are, you know, that's, I, I, I want action. I want to get it done. I want, I want them to do it now. I don't want to wait on them. And I think we're just conditioned to that. We've become more and more conditioned to that even in the recent years with our smartphones. And, you know, I can instantly have information. I can instantly know things. I can order something and have it same day or one day shipping, two day shipping. I mean, just have it almost instantaneously. And I don't have to wait anything 
for anything anymore. You know, I, I have confessed in the past that I'm kind of addicted to Amazon and I really don't like it. I'm actually thinking, ah, I need to change that habit. I, I read recently that they actually became the largest retailer outside of China. They surpassed Walmart last month to become the largest retailer outside of China. And it's built on our culture. They are able to supply you anything you want quickly. Quickly. That, and it's, this, it's built on our culture of lack of patience, lack of waiting for what is to come for us. So, you know, whether it's dessert or a steady career or recovery from an illness or a spiritual transformation or a wedding day, there's big things, there's little things, but we want them according to our timeline. And when we get them according to our timeline, we're happy. And when we don't, we're not. We can become cantankerous, mad, upset, grumpy. We lose focus. We change direction sometimes, sometimes in a good way, but sometimes in a bad way. There are times when we wait, and we realize, too, that there are lessons to be learned from the waiting. I don't know if how many of you guys have ever done that, where you were forced to wait for something, and then you realized, oh, yeah, you know, maybe I really wasn't ready for what we thought we wanted. Or maybe you weren't forced to wait, and you got what you thought you wanted, and then you realized, oh, <laughs> maybe I really wasn't ready for that. The world has a way of doing that. You know, we as parents, we try and help our children and guide them and say, help them realize when they're ready for things and when they're not, because, you know, according to their timeline, they would take everything immediately. Um, because they're always ready, you know, we're six going on 16 or whatever that is, you know, they're always ready for the big thing. And uh, we, we have to gently guide them to more realistic expectations of where they are in life and hope that they learn the right lessons along the way. I think God does this for us too. And we know that the waiting is the prerequisite for anything significant in our life. Waiting is. I've heard it said that it cradles life events like bookends. That when one season of waiting ends, the next season of waiting begins. And I think the Bible illustrates this pretty well. We have story after story after story in Scripture, this thread of waiting and more waiting, ultimately waiting on the Messiah to come. Whether it's in the Tanakh or in the New Covenant writings, Israel is waiting on their promised Messiah. And we've been in that same season of waiting for the last 2,000 years. We've been in that same season of waiting for the Messiah to come again. And when we think about the return of Messiah, as we've been kind of focused on this these, these last few weeks during the fall feast, we think about the return of the Messiah, it's in conjunction with the coming of his kingdom rule. The return of the Messiah is in conjunction with the, his kingdom rule. Now, I want to I make sure it's clear that we believe that the kingdom of God came to a great extent in the ministry and teaching of Yeshua during his first coming. We do believe the kingdom of God came to a great extent in that time. This is not new. The kingdom broke also into this age during Shavuot in Acts chapter 2. And I'm not, I'm not going to read the whole chapter to you, but I, I want to read just from Acts chapter 2. It says... When the day of Shavuot had come, 
they were all gathered in one place, there suddenly, suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. It filled the whole house where they were sitting, and tongues like fire spreading out appeared to them and settled on each one of them. They were all filled with the Ruach HaKodesh and began to speak in other tongues as the Ruach enabled them to speak out. Now, Jewish men, Jewish people were staying in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when the sound came, the crowd gathered. They were bewildered because each was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were all amazed and astonished, saying, Are these who are speaking, aren't they all Galileans? How is it that we each hear our own birth language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and those living in Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia and Phrygia and Pamphylia and Egypt and parts of Libya towards Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jewish people and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring in our own tongues the mighty deeds of God. The kingdom broke out at Shavuot. And Dan Jester, he tells us in in his book, Relational Leadership, he says that it was the Lord's plan that there would be a stage of the kingdom in which Jews and Gentiles would come under the rule of the Messiah, and that the congregation of Yeshua invites all people, all people to come under the rule of the king. And those who do so now will have the privilege of being the bride of Messiah. It's what we've talked about. We sang about this earlier. The bride of Messiah. To rule by the Messiah's side when the kingdom comes. In the age to come. And so the gospel, the good news, the basura, therefore is the invitation to enter this kingdom. That's what the gospel is. It's the invitation to enter this kingdom. To enter the kingdom under the rule of the Messiah. And to come under the rule of the king. So the basis for this invitation then, as we saw recently in our immersions, in, in both at uh, Yom Shruah and at Sukkot, it's this atonement for Yeshua. He died on the stake that we might be forgiven, we might be atoned for our sins, and that we could then come under his rule in his kingdom. And so that really is truly good news. It is excellent news, because when people accept that invitation, they submit to the rule of the king. We submit to the rule of the king when we accept that invitation into the kingdom. In, in, that, in that good news, their lives come into right order. Into right order. Both individually and corporately. You know, we are transformed by becoming one, by becoming a chad with his death and his resurrection that's expressed in that, in that water immersion. It says that in Romans chapter 6, that we, we become one with him. We join with him in that death and resurrection, in that, when we are immersed. And so we have this opportunity to respond to the gospel invitation. And then afterwards, we can live in obedience to the king, under his rule, by the enabling power of the Holy Spirit. Now, I, this is really basic. I, I understand that, where, where I'm going with this, okay? What, what this leads to, though, is that the kingdom, this understanding of this kingdom, and the gospel that includes the kingdom elements, they, they lead to things like leading marriages, healing families, restoring relationships, forming communities of love like we have here at Remnant of Israel, demonstrating the principles, the power of the Lord in whatever life endeavors that a disciple undertakes. These are things that happen as a result of coming under the rule of the king in his kingdom. 
And so the kingdom of the Lord is manifested then in the life of the whole congregation. It's manifested in the life of our families and as individuals to extent, to, only to the extent that they, that they submit to the rule of the king. Okay? It, to the extent that I am willing to submit to the rule of the king, the kingdom of the Lord will be manifested in my life. And it's the same is true for you. It's the same is true for this whole congregation together. And so there's this conundrum, though, that we have with this kingdom, when we, when we deal with this kingdom. Because the coming of this kingdom that we are in, it's not full yet. It is only a partial coming of the kingdom right now. We are not, the kingdom has not come in its full. And so we're in this period of in-between right now. It's a not yet. It's a partial. Partially here. Partially fulfilled. And it can be confusing. We know we're waiting but how do we wait? We're waiting for the king to come, but how do we wait? What should we be doing in the meantime? Is the question that I had. And so to understand how we wait well, what we should be doing in the meantime, we need to really ensure, first and foremost, that we have a full understanding of the gospel of Yeshua. And that's why I was talking about that. that that's the foundation right there. To understand what we should be doing in the meantime, we have to have that foundation be continually reminded of the full understanding of the gospel of Yeshua, the good news, the basura that I spoke of. It's, it's that which God gives the grace to be transformed in your life. It's that, that's what gives us the grace to do that. It's, it's much, 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 much more than just being saved to go to heaven. Much more than that. You know, I don't want to disparage in any way the, the hope of heaven, okay? I'm not, I'm not disparaging that or our life after this one. It is very important. I'm not disparaging it at all. It's super important. Zach spoke about that a little bit last week. But, because, you know, without, without that hope, okay, I'll just say this, without the hope for that, for that uh, life to come, without that hope for that future life, in the words of Paul, okay, he says that in 1 Corinthians 15, 19, that we are to be most pitied if we don't have that hope, okay? So I, I, I don't want to disparage that. But the good news is much more than that. The manifestation of the kingdom in our congregations, in our families, and as individuals is much more than getting people and getting more people to have a genuine hope in heaven. We can understand the full meaning of the gospel, the fuller message of the good news, if we understand that, the concern, that a concern for heaven was really not the issue in the first century Jewish context of the gospels. It was not their concern then in that first century. Most Jews, they, they were quite convinced that they were headed for a heavenly afterlife, after death. They, they were assured of life with God as long as they sought to be faithful to the covenant that God made with Abraham and extended through Moses. They were assured of that. There was, however, a great Jewish concern at that time and it can be phrased in the question, where is the kingdom of God that was prophesied by the prophets? Where is it at? That's what they were asking during that time. In the time of Yeshua, they were asking, where, where is it? Because indeed, the, the great hope of the prophets was that Israel and the nations would be under the rule of the Messiah, the son of David. That's what they hoped in. Israel would be delivered from all of their enemies in such a mighty intervention that God, that from God the nations would stream into Israel, into the kingdom of God. 
we read that in Isaiah 2, 4, that swords would be beaten into plowshares. We read that last week. And spears into pruning hooks. Nations would no longer go to war. It says that the Lord would go forth with, the word of the Lord would go forth from Zion. And even nature itself would be transformed. For we read in Isaiah eleven seven that the lion would eat straw like an ox. Okay, I don't think I see lions eating straw like an ox right now. But we, we know that nature will be transformed. The wolf will lie down with the lamb. The earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord. The Lord would be one in his name, one. In all of the earth, as we read in Zechariah 14, 9. Okay? These are all things that we look forward to. These are things that they looked forward to in ancient Israel. That's what they were looking for. Where is it at? When are these things going to happen? So their questions were when. They were how. How's it going to happen? And it was much greater than, than, than uh, that first question. That first century question was much greater than the form of the kingdom of God. They, they weren't really questioning the form of it. They were questioning, where is it at? We know what it's going to look like. The prophets already told us what it's going to look like. Where is it at? When's it going to come? That's what they were trying to figure out. And so there was religious parties in that day that were trying to grease the skids for the win. Okay? They were trying to make it happen faster. They, they were trying to do it in their own way, though trying to move history towards the climax of the coming kingdom. So we, we have the religious parties, the Pharisees, the Phariseeism in that day. They were, it was largely taking the purity laws that were assigned to the priests and applying them to the people as a whole. That was generally what they were trying to do. The Pharisees were trying to take the laws for the priests, apply them to the people, and they thought if they can get enough people to be as pure as the priests and the land to be as pure as the temple then the Messiah will come and bring deliverance. That was generally their thought process. There was a lot more nuance to the Pharisees, but as a whole, that was generally what their objective was. So you had the Pharisees, then you had the Essenes, who thought, yeah, we're kind, we kind of agree with the Pharisees, but those guys are corrupt. They compromise with that corrupt temple and that priesthood, and so we got to step it up a notch. So the Essenes stepped it up, and they sought a purity stricter than the Pharisees. They, they isolated themselves, some of them did. They joined monastic-like communities, practicing daily bathing and rituals. And their hope, though, was not in the salvation of all of Israel or all the people, but just of those who were, you know, really keeping it pure, like the, themselves, the Essenes. That was, that was where their hope was. Now, there was a third group, too. They were the Zealots at that point in time, okay? And they looked upon all the stuff that the... Uh, that the Essenes were doing, and they thought that was foolish. Faith, in their eyes, in their minds, was understood as raising a revolt against the Romans. And so when a sufficient number of people were in revolt, they believed the Messiah would return, would arise, and lead them to victory. That was generally what they were trying to do to, to bring about that Messianic kingdom. And it was through their efforts that Rome came and destroyed Jerusalem later on in 70 AD. They revolted, and Rome destroyed Jerusalem at that point in time. So that was the stage that Yeshua was in the ministry when he came, when he came into ministry. And so when he announced that the kingdom of God 
is at hand. And he said, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. He said that in Mark 1.15. He said that. And it left them astonished. It left them excited because they're like, whoa. Okay. You know, somebody's telling me that the kingdom of God is here. Now, I know what that means in first century Jewish culture. Okay? So I know what to expect. And now he's saying the when, and I'm looking for the how now. What's he going to do? What is Yeshua going to do? And so that was his key. You know, they understood it a little bit differently, each one of them, whether they followed the Pharisees. Um, I didn't even mention the Sadducees because they actually kind of stayed out of that game. They weren't quite trying to play it. They were, they were more, they were pretty satisfied with being in control of the temple, okay? They, they, weren't, uh, they weren't looking to change things up as much. Um, and so, so, they understood it differently depending on which group that they followed. That phrase, at hand, that Yeshua said, when he said the kingdom of God is at hand, that was a euphemism that they understood that said it was available to you. It was available. They heard that saying, him saying, the kingdom of God is available to you. It's available to you to embrace. It's available for you to enter into it. So that was their answer of where is the kingdom, Okay. Now he's got to show how. How is the kingdom going to come? And, and he would have to show that even though the final fullness of the kingdom fully established over all the earth would have to wait until a future intervention, that's what he would have to show. That he was bringing a partial fulfillment. And they, that's where they really struggled to understand it, I think. And that's where I think even the disciples didn't fully understand it at least initially they didn't understand it, that, that it was not a full, a, it was not a kingdom coming in his fullness, but he would have to return to have a future fully established kingdom over all of the earth. And that's where we are still at. We are waiting for that final fullness of the kingdom to be reestablished or to be fully established over all the earth. And so I want to ask that question of how do we recognize it? Because I said, where is the where this current kingdom is? Okay, I mentioned where this is, but I want to relook at it and establish and ask that question: How do we recognize it? And so, I want to I want to think about this, about how the kingdom of God, how we recognize where the kingdom of God is established. And I will I will submit to you that we will see it, we will recognize the kingdom of God being established wherever the rule of God is established. Now that might sound like circular logic. Well, you just told me that, Philip. He just said, well, the kingdom of God is established wherever it's established. (laughs) Yes, but where you see the rule of God established, you will know that the kingdom is there. You will see the evidence of it in your own eyes. Now, I'm not talking about through political power or military power, but I'm talking about through spiritual breakthrough in individuals and in families and in congregations. That's what I'm talking about. To the extent that his rule is established in any sphere of human life, we can say, there is the kingdom. To the extent that his rule is established in any sphere in human life, we can say there is the kingdom. However, the kingdom cannot, it can only be established through his power. We cannot establish it through our strength. We are weak and he is strong. We have sin, and he does not, in our weakness and our sin, we don't have the ability to establish God's kingdom on our own. We cannot vote his kingdom into power. We cannot argue his kingdom into power through convincing arguments on social media. We cannot march or protest his kingdom into power 
It only comes through Yeshua. Yeshua's power come, come, Yeshua's kingdom, his kingdom comes with the power to establish his rule beginning in our hearts. That's where it comes. It begins in our hearts in the transformation of our individual lives and then in our families in that way. That's where the transformation comes. It comes from person to person and group to group in that way. I want you to think about how some of the things that we would recognize, though, some of the dimensions of Yeshua's ministry that really show the reality of the kingdom, some of the things we would be looking for, okay, that some of the things that he demonstrated, okay, right? What, what did he demonstrate when we look and think about his life and his ministry? He was doing things like delivering people from demonic possession, right? He was healing sicknesses from people. We saw that the power of Yeshua and his kingdom even overcame natural forces like wind or storms on a lake or a hurricane at sea in the case of Paul that that even in those that he was able to be they were able to overcome him through God's kingdom power God's kingdom power enables us to live according to the teachings of Yeshua and it really brings the, the Torah to its highest application in my opinion his kingdom power really does that it enables us to to remove hatred from our hearts towards other people, towards our enemies. Murder becomes impossible in God's kingdom because it would never enter into our hearts. We love our enemies. We don't just avoid literal adultery, but we avoid lust in our hearts in God's kingdom under his rule. We're honest with our words and true to our promises. We're free from religious pride. We pray with sincerity we overcome political agitation and we focus on praying for all who serve in our government. We're free from material greed and worry for if we seek first the kingdom of God, we shall have all these things added to us. Those are things that are signs and when you see those, you know that the kingdom of God is in that place, in that person. When you see those demonstrated in a life, that's, those are the fruits that are demonstrating that the kingdom is in the life of that person. Another example, again, I said fruits, would be the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, selflessness. What is it? Faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There we go. I added one. Selflessness is not there. <laughs> yeah. Fruits that we would see that the kingdom is involved, is, is established in that life of that person, right? So the parables of Yeshua also, they also show the nature of the kingdom too that he offers, how it spreads. He gave, he gave so many parables, starting with the kingdom of God is like such and such. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, right? Uh, and, and the smallest of the seeds, and it spreads and becomes a, a very large tree, right? The seed spreads, the word of God spreads. It finds reception in willing soils as it's planted in different types of soils, but it spreads in the, in the good soil, and it grows and produces a hundredfold. We see so many stories like that. It grows from a small beginning, like the mustard seed, to a large tree, as I said. The treasure, it's a treasure that supersedes all. It's a treasure beyond the, the pearl of great price that you would sell everything to obtain. He gives so many examples of the kingdom like that. We, t we see that in like Matthew chapter 13. Yeah, in, in all of this, though, I, I would told you this earlier, and I think it's true, the disciples really didn't realize that the kingdom was not immediately going to its final stage. They didn't quite get it then. 
They didn't understand that his death and his resurrection were necessary first to establish the kingdom. They didn't quite get that. Um, we see that all the way up, even to after his resurrection. And they're like, they're, you know, the examples of them not trusting in it, and they're like, you would know that he, you must be mistaken. You must, the tomb's empty? Like, they didn't get it. Like, what was, what was happening there, even, at that point in time? All the way through that, they didn't understand it until that time in Acts chapter 2 when they were waiting and the Spirit came on them and really, truly began to transform and, and establish in them their knowledge and understanding of what the kingdom was going to do and what it was going to look like from then until now, even, as we are still waiting. That's what was happening. And we saw that, that gift of the Spirit came, and that was the key to the availability of the kingdom. Okay, And, and I want us to really understand that. The gift of the Spirit is the key. It was given there at Shavuot, and that is the key to the availability of the kingdom in all of our lives to all people. Because it is, because it is only the gift of the Spirit that comes with the Ruach, that, re, that comes with the, I'm sorry, with, the, with the repentance, with our acceptance of the rule of the King, that gift of the Spirit is all that enables us to be truly transformed in our lives. That's what it is. It's the gift of the Spirit. So I want you to really... Repeat that in your mind. The gift of the Spirit is the key to the availability of the kingdom. That is very, very true for us. And so hear me when I say this. It's, it's also the gift that's the key to us. The gift of the Spirit is the key to us while we wait. While we wait. Because, as I said, that waiting is that time when transformation occurs. And so it's the gift of the Spirit in our lives that enables that transformation you know, whether we're talking about our own life or a group or an organization or someone else's life, it's the gift of the Spirit that's the key to that waiting. It's the gift of the Spirit that's the key to the kingdom being available to all people. So the question for each of us today then, the question for me, the question for you is, what am I going to do in this kingdom, in the power of the Spirit, as I wait for the final fulfillment? Okay, I've been looking forward to the fulfillment of the kingdom. I, I've been celebrating these fall feasts and I'm so excited, I am ready for Yeshua to return. But he's not here yet. So what am I going to do? What am I going to do in the now, in the here and now, the in-between time? How do I wait well? How do I, how do I, what do I do while I'm waiting? And to help answer that, I want to offer you three insights about waiting well for the kingdom. And the first one is that waiting well requires dying to yourself. Waiting well requires dying to yourself, but it brings peace. It brings peace. And that, the hardest part of waiting well is that it requires dying to yourself. The reality is it's not possible to wait well with one foot demanding your will and the other surrendering to God's will. You can't do it. You cannot have both. You're either all in or you're all out when you're waiting. Sometimes we think of dying to yourself, though, as a once-and-done thing. You know, I died to myself, to my, to my sins, and I, and I am forgiven now, and I am atoned for that. But I, I would submit to you that that's not really true, okay? Yes, we do that first. We do it, we do it initially when we accept Yeshua. But dying to ourselves, dying to yourself requires... A daily declaration of saying, not my will, but your will be done. That's, we do that every single day. 
It requires a firm understanding of the gospel. If we don't understand the gospel, we cannot die to ourselves. We will not want to die to ourselves every day. I guarantee you there will be many days where you will refuse to die to yourself if you do not understand the gospel. Because it requires us to grasp the magnitude of forgiveness that's offered to us because there will be days when we don't want to forgive and do the things that God calls us to do. But we will do them when we firmly understand the gospel and it will influence our daily habits, our interaction, our communication with other people. They will help us die to ourselves. Now, I was thinking about this in the context of our rabbi being in the hospital and dying to ourselves and that. You know, we've been praying for him for several weeks now and we're still waiting for his complete healing to be made. Um, It's still continuing. We're still waiting on it. We need to be steadfast in this. I want to encourage you in this. Denying our own desires for instant healing and pray that the timeline of his healing will bring glory to God. The timeline and the interactions within his healing are going to bring, bring the most glory to God, bring the most souls to salvation, to his kingdom, to build his kingdom the most. So every day we can give up, we can do things to deny, to deny ourselves and die to ourselves with regard to his healing. We can die to ourselves and give up our own rights for our own time to stop and pray for him, to write him a letter, to go visit him, to pray for God to use his illness and his healing, to go and encourage him. Each day we can lay down our burden and ask God to help us see this event and any difficult event in the way that he sees it. And in return, I firmly believe that God will give us his supernatural peace about what's going on. I believe that. He tells us that he will. He'll give us a peace that passes understanding. Doesn't mean I won't ever have anxiety, okay? But he will give us peace about these things that we can't really explain in words. We won't give up hope about Rabbi John. We're still desperately praying for his healing. However, it's going to be through surrendering to God that we're going to find peace in this whole process for him. And, and, and I use that as one example because it's very relevant, very current, but we could say that about any uh, difficult, challenging situation in our life. So the first thing about waiting well, and what do we do while we wait is, we, is waiting well requires dying to self, okay? It, but it brings peace. The second one is that waiting requires trusting in God, but it brings strength, Waiting requires trusting in God, but it brings strength. Sometimes we're waiting on something that's unknown. Sometimes we're waiting on something that we're scared about. We're nervous about. Um, we don't know the outcome, or the out- we think we're not going to like the outcome of it. And some, be- you know, some believers, a specific example of this is there's some people who believe in a, have a desire for a pre-tribulation rapture, because they fear the suffering that will come with the tribulation. So they want to get out of here. So they don't have to deal with it anymore. That's pretty common. Um, Some people will look at the circumstances that are rapidly changing in America and around the world, and their minds are going through these strings of, what if? What if this happens? And what if this happens? Until we reach some resolution to our fear. But for us as believers, whenever we go through those scenarios in our minds, those what ifs, We should be remembering and focusing on the character of God. We should be trusting in God and his character when we're going through those scenarios. Because throughout the Bible, if we're digging into his word, God reveals his character 
to us through the lives of the people whose stories are told. All of these waiting, wait on me stories are told and they remind us of his character. So if, if you're not in the word, if you're not trusting in him and getting into his word and digging into it, not reading and rereading those stories, reminding yourself, teaching yourself, teaching your children, your grandchildren, and speaking with your neighbors and your siblings and your friends. If you're not doing these things, you're going to forget. You're going to lose trust. You're going to lose hope. But if you start in Genesis, like we started this week in Genesis, and you just work through the word like a sweet morsel that I talked about last week, or on, on Wednesday, that sweet morsel we did with Simchat Torah, if, if we're working through that and just reading the word and recall, recalling all of the people we know in the Bible, it's hard to find one who didn't have to wait on God in some way, in some shape or form. Now, there's some examples that, you know, the stories are specifically about waiting, right? Um, like Hannah in the Bible, and specifically about this, this theme of waiting, but sometimes it's not the theme of the story, but there's always usually some element of waiting involved, okay? Like, uh, as an example, I was just thinking it came to mind of, of David mourning for the loss of the child after his sin with Bathsheba. It really wasn't a theme of waiting in that story, but he certainly had to wait on God. What was God going to do with that child and after that sin? There's so many examples of waiting on God, and it reveals to us the sovereignty of God when we study those. He's in control. Everything is in his timing. It reveals to us that he takes care of his people, and waiting is how he strengthens his people. He makes us strong in waiting. So when we have those scenarios, and we're going through the what if this happens each time, if you do this, each time you, hopefully you will arrive now at the same place. We're going to arrive at this place of God's going to take care of me. God is in control of this. I will trust the Lord and he will strengthen me in this when we go through these what-if scenarios. So that's the second one. The third one for waiting is that waiting requires us to focus on God and not on our desire. It requires us to focus on God and not on our desire, and that brings holiness. And I would submit to you that waiting is God's training ground for holiness. Waiting on the Messiah's return, even enduring the tribulation, that some of us may have to endure, it's a time of purification from God. While we're waiting, though, it's easy to become focused, easy to become fixated on what we want. It's really true. If, if we clear everything else out, have you ever done this where... You like, you're so focused on what you want and you clear everything else out and that all you focus on is the, th- the thing that you're waiting for. So you have nothing else to distract you and you're like, you know, you just get, I mean, you get, you're getting anxious. You might be getting nervous or you might be getting excited. When I say the thing that you want, it might be the thing that you don't want too. It's like, you know, the... If, if you had ever, like, told a kid to go sit in timeout while you wait and figure out what you're going to do with the kid, because <laughs> they've done something, and they're, like, getting nervous over there, and you're just over there trying to think, oh, what am I going to do? And all they're thinking about is what, what's going to happen, right? Because they've got nothing else to think about, right? <laughs> you're kind of, like, making them sweat on that a little bit. But sometimes we're like, yeah, I'm going to make the kid sweat a little bit, right? We, <laughs> a little parenting tactic, we... 
we might have sometimes, but the reality is if we do that and we don't focus on anything else other than just literally waiting, that fixation on those fears or desires becomes more and more intense, usually. And this tends to lead to impatience. It tends to lead to poor solutions. You can think of a few people in Scripture who, whose impatience led to poor solutions that they tried to implement. <coughs> Abraham, um, as an example. But oftentimes in our own lives, that happens to us. Oftentimes, though, you know, we have these desires. We have, like, maybe larger desires in our lives, general desires in our lives. Like, we just want a peaceful life. I want to live a life that's easy. I want to live a life that I have good times with my family and my friends and no stress and no problems. The problem is, when we focus on those desires, those often actually lead to sin. When I don't have anything else going on in my life, other than ease of life, that often leads to sin. So even though I might be a strong believer doing the right things, my heart can just be fixated on what I want. And that becomes an idol. I want peace. I want relaxation. I want an easy retirement. I want to coast out of you know, life. I want a steady career. Um, that can be my idol rather than the holiness that God is trying to put in me. When I, we look at, at Scripture, Colossians chapter 3, verse 2, tells us to set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. In chapter 3, verse 2 of Colossians, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Now, practically, this might mean for me, you know, setting down my smartphone, putting away social media, turning off the TV, separating myself from the desire to have like that inside information about every crisis or things that aren't going the way I think they should be. So there must be something I don't know about this one thing. So I'm going to dig into the depths of the internet and find out whatever some wacko is thinking out there and they've published online. You know, they've, they have, it's, it's all available to us and we can, can, we can just set our minds on earthly things if we allow ourselves to, or we can set our minds on things above. We can choose to focus on God and His Word and trusting in Him. And when we do that, God's going to transform us when we stick to His Word. And, and I believe He will do that because if we read further down in that passage in Colossians chapter 3, it goes through a list of sins that we're to put to death and that we will put to death when we focus on things that are above. And the reason it's listed after this, I think Rav Shul is trying to tell us and warn us that not setting our minds on Yeshua is going to lead to those things. But if we set our minds on, thing, on Yeshua, we're not going to do those things. He's going to transform us. Paul warns us about, or not warns us, he promises, I'm sorry, he promises this in, in Romans chapter 5 too. In verses 3 and 4, he says that, the holy, that holiness comes from suffering. Okay? So the things that... Uh, that we are waiting on, and maybe even suffering as we wait, he's going to give us holiness. He's going to make us holy. It tells us that holiness comes from suffering, and in this example, the waiting might be suffering. Like, you might just be suffering because you're waiting so long. Or it might be there's some literal things going on there, too. Have literal suffering as we wait. Now, it says that not only that, but we rejoice 
in our sufferings. Why? Why do we rejoice in our sufferings, it says? In Romans chapter 5, it says, because we know that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. So it's in the waiting, it's important that we don't lose our focus on God. And we don't transition our focus to our desire, that thing we're waiting for. We have to focus on God in our waiting. So all of that said, waiting well for the final fulfillment of the kingdom of God to manifest itself, manifest itself in the return of the Messiah, Yeshua, it does not mean that the sting of the reality of this current partially fulfilled life goes away, okay? Um, I don't want to promise you that the wait is going to be easy in our lives. Um, it does not mean we're going to glide right into eternity. And I think I've been pretty clear on that this morning. That that's not what we're supposed to be focused on, what we're supposed to be doing in this time. There's going to be tension. There's always tension in waiting. Always. We always have tension in waiting. There will always be a pull between the reality of now and the desire of what's to come. They're all, it's it's the, just how waiting is. But waiting well, that's what we have to do. And it's more, it's more about posture, the posture that we bring into it. And so instead of, there's a posture of people who don't wait well, okay? I can think of, you know, when I'm trying to train my children how to wait well, one of the things I train, try and train out of them is that posture of laying on the floor, kicking and screaming, throwing a temper tantrum. That's not waiting well. But I will tell you that adults do that because they haven't learned how to wait well. You've seen it with your very eyes. Usually, it's the people on the other end of the service center that are receiving the phone call of the person who doesn't know how to wait well. And they're saying, where is X? Where is Y? Why can't you do this for me? Why can't you do that for me? Why are you such a horrible company? You're a horrible person in the meantime, you know, <laughs> because I am refusing to wait well. But I am going to wait well under the rule of the king and in his kingdom. I'm going to wait well. I'm going to change my posture from one of tantrums and of kicking and screaming to one on bended knee before the king bowed to him, submitting to him who knows best. That's my posture. My heart still, yeah, it's still going to want what I desire. Hopefully he's putting good desires in my heart, though, transforming what I desire. But I have a present calmness about it. I won't be throwing a tantrum about it. I'm not going to be striving to make something happen that's not happening. But I'll be actively seeking to understand what God is doing in that time, as I submit to him. So I want to encourage you today, encourage every one of us today, and I'm going to close on this message, so if we want to go, somebody want to go up and get the kids? Sam, can you go up and get them? Thank you. As I close on this message, I want to encourage you, my encouragement to our congregation as a whole, is that even while we wait for the total, complete kingdom of God to come. Even while we wait for it to be fulfilled, we can live 
life as God intended for us. When we come to the Father on the basis of the death and resurrection of Yeshua, our sins are forgiven. We know that. And we enter into the kingdom of God. Praise the Lord. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. We do enter into the kingdom of God. And so this kingdom message is the promise. It's the promise that God will put all things in order in our lives, in his right order. I want to remember that it's his right order, not our right order, because my order might not be his order. So the kingdom message is this promise that he's going to put our personal lives, our family, our community, our business, and our artistry, and our gifts, and our everything into his right order. And the invitation of the kingdom, it's only possible because Yeshua died to atone for our sins. That's only the only place, only place it's possible. The only reason it's possible is because he died to atone for our sins. However, in this world, we can now live in and from the kingdom. We have God's spirit, his ruach, his power in us to live in his kingdom, for his kingdom, to expand his kingdom. And it affects every single dimension of our lives. I mentioned some of those dimensions earlier. Okay? So once we grasp that understanding of the kingdom, that his kingdom affects and his, his rule is in every sphere in our lives and can be in every sphere and should be in every sphere in our lives, when we understand that and have a firm grasp of the understanding of the gospel that his atoning, atonement for our sins and that understanding of that and his spirit living within us when we have that grasp, it leads us to embrace a quest in our life, a new quest in our life to establish his kingdom in every sphere in our life. We're trying to find out and trying to search out where are the spheres in my life, where are the areas in my life, the corners of my life, the niches in my life where I have not yielded and not given to the kingdom of God. And we're looking for those areas. Looking for them to be set in right order. Looking him to extend his kingdom through us. And it becomes extended through us through evangelism too. Because as we do so and establish every sphere of our life under his kingdom, that evangelism becomes natural because we become intentional with every encounter that we have. It doesn't matter if it's within a family or within individuals. We don't have to be married or single. It doesn't matter which, what we are. We become intentional with every encounter in our life, with every person in our life. It leads to the quest for his power in our lives to obey all of his commandments, beginning with our command, the command to love God and to love our neighbor as ourselves. Those are the things that become overwhelming in our desires in our lives. How can we love God more? How can we love our neighbors more? To love our neighbors as ourselves. The kingdom is seen in the one, in every one of us who lives according to the teaching of Yeshua. The kingdom is seen in greater fullness in the quality of marriage and family that's ordered by his presence and ordered by his power. The kingdom is seen in the life of the single person who recognizes their great worth and their great freedom to serve without constraints. It's seen in the life of a congregation that lives within apostolic order. So I want to encourage you. We've, we've celebrated these fall feasts, okay? We finished the holidays. We've been focusing on repentance, on teshuva, and ultimately the Lord's judgment and his tabernacling with us. I don't want you to be discouraged by the present circumstances we have in this world today or to be discouraged by the fact that Yeshua, his return, is not yet. Instead, I want you to be encouraged this morning 
or as this afternoon as it may be, because I've gone a little long. I want you to be encouraged. Let's live with this body a life full of power in the Spirit, the power of the Spirit in our lives, expanding God's kingdom at every opportunity, at every single sphere in our life, being intentional with every relationship that we have, with every encounter that we have. Let's slow down. Let's not be in such a hurry to get to the end because God has put things in front of us. We don't need to hurry up and wait. The kingdom will come in its fullness in its time. It will come, okay? It's, I, I remember this clearly from birthing class. You know, they, you don't have to rush the baby out. The baby's going to come. It will be born when it's ready to be born. The kingdom will come in its fullness, in its time. In the meantime, God has work for us to do. And he's put it in front of you in the form of your relationships and all of the circumstances that you're in. And he's asking you to submit to his rule in every sphere of, his, of your life every sphere of your life, to submit to his rule. He's putting those in front of you for you to serve, those opportunities for you to serve him, though. So, let's put our eagerness in hearing God speak the words to us that someday we are going to hear from him. Well done, good and faithful servant. Amen? Amen. Hallelujah.